Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Craig Oliver, David Cameron's former Director of Communications, former BBC bigwig and now host of his own podcast, Desperately Seeking Wisdom. And we talk about politics in the show. As you would imagine, we start off talking about contemporary stuff. And of course, his view, uh, having worked in Number 10 about what's been going on there lately, uh, is brilliant. But this is about something far bigger and far deeper. And Craig is someone who, from the outside, looks like someone who's always had it all, very successful, um, very good at his job. Um, but he's been forced to reflect in recent years about happiness and how he actually feels about life. And that's why he started doing this podcast. And there is, there's, I think just throughout this, it's almost like, um, it's like meditation talking to Craig. The, the, you find a sense of inner peace over the course of this interview. It just makes you think about life a bit. And it's very easy sometimes when you're just in the middle of work all the time or, you know, if you've got kids, a busy life in whatever way that means to you, you don't often really think about um, how to actually make yourself happy and, and how to improve your life. And sometimes it does take someone like Craig, who is taking that time out to effectively think for the rest of us. And his new podcast is superb. And some of the interviews on there with Richard Curtis, George Allegai, the latest edition with Ruth Davidson is incredible. Uh, so I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, don't forget, you can come and see the show live now um, in the West End. The next few guests are absolutely incredible. On Monday, the 24th of January, I'm so excited to be interviewing Angela Rayner for the first time. Um, she is one of the biggest stars in modern politics. So charismatic. And, you know, for so long, there have been people on the left saying, why doesn't Labour have these, these big characters anymore? She is a big character and someone with a very big future. And she's already deputy leader of the Labour Party. She's led an incredible life already. And she's so young. So the future is, is uh, you know, could hold many things for Angela Rayner, but she is a massive personality. That's on Monday, the 24th of January, this coming Monday uh, at the Duchess Theatre. Two weeks after that, on the 7th of February, I'm joined by Michael Heseltine, the dictionary definition of a heavyweight. Two weeks after that, on the 21st of February, Edwina Corrie, one of the most entertaining people uh, ever to have entered British politics. And two weeks after that, on the 7th of March, rescheduled the one, the only Neil Kinnock. Some fantastic guests to announce after that. But my word, what a run of guests. You can get tickets for all of those at mattford.com slash live. And I've put a link in the blurb. I've also put a link in the blur where you can subscribe to Craig's new fantastic podcast. So without further ado, here's Craig Oliver. Craig, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, the last time I was with you, it was a very cold, wet London, but I'm very lucky to be away at the moment and it's nice and sunny. 
And where you are now, we, we, we should be clear by the time people listen to this, it will have been a few days, but Prime Minister's questions has just happened. Um, at this moment, bearing in mind that obviously we know things may change by the time people listen to this, but at this moment, what's your assessment of uh, Boris Johnson's I think predicament? Look, any, anything you say at the moment is going to be a bit of a hostage to fortune. I think the first thing to remember is in an environment where everything's very febrile and very volatile for good reason. Um, a lot of people get carried away. It's pretty hard, I think, to unseat a prime minister who doesn't want to go. And if you look at Theresa May, she had huge amounts of pressure and speculation for a couple of years, and it took a long time for her to go. Or even John Major, you think about the sheer pain and agony that he went through. He even went through a leadership contest and, and, and clung on. So it is very hard to get rid of a prime minister who doesn't want to go. The difficulty is can people actually try and prove that he misled Parliament or that he was caught in a lie that is incredibly painful and unavoidable? What's interesting listening to PMQs was that he was hanging on this idea that people thought that it was an office event. And I suspect he thinks that... Sorry, you can hear a... a, a a siren in the background. But I suspect he thinks that Sue Gray, who's investigating this, will say that people sincerely believe they were going to an office event and therefore he will hang on that technicality and hope that he can move on. Seeing, you know, the garden of number 10, the internal workings of number 10 exposed in the newspapers, obviously you worked there for David Cameron. Thinking about that garden as you do, thinking about the, you know, how tight number 10 is as a building, do you believe his version of events. Look, what I think probably happened, you've got to remember somebody was reminding me, you know, he'd just come out of the intensive care unit, that kind of thing. I think that, that the building was under extraordinary and extreme pressure. What I find really hard to believe and what is very difficult to believe is that you're literally making announcements about people only being able to meet one person outside at a two metres distance. Oliver Dowden was making that statement. Um, this was obviously very clear to very senior people in number 10. Um, it's very hard to believe that those senior people didn't think, hang on a minute, this probably isn't a good idea. And even if on a technicality they thought, well, we're all mixing together and it's part of the office space, that they didn't think actually our leadership role is to take more pain because other people are taking pain. So that is all extraordinarily difficult for them, I think. Do you think, um, had had you been in number 10 at that time, if David Cameron would have been Prime Minister and this had happened, a gathering like that would have taken place? I don't for a number of reasons. And I think that if I were offering advice to Boris Johnson, then the unlikely event that he had a remainer like me at number 10 advising him. Um, in that unlikely series of circumstances, I like to think that I would have gone to his office several weeks ago and said, look, we need to rip the plaster off now. That is going to cause a short-term pain. It's going to be extremely difficult. It's going to be admitting to things that mean that our political enemies are going to be able to attack us. But if we persist in this idea that somehow they weren't really parties or we're trying to get around it with legal definitions of party and that kind of thing, I, uh, we, we, we will be in serious problem and it will be much more pain in the long term. And I genuinely think that had they done that, a lot of the heat 
would have been taken out of it. They would have faced real pain. It would have been incredibly difficult. But I think that the history of the pandemic shows that the British public have been incredibly forgiving, uh, surprisingly so in many circumstances, and probably would have listened to that. There's a piece in The Times today by Danny Finkelstein where he says that, 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 that you couldn't communicate your way out of this. I, I think that's wrong. I think you could have communicated your way out of this. It wouldn't have been pretty. It wouldn't have been present. But he would not have been facing the pain that he had in the House of Commons at PMQs or people facing um, or the sheer number of people facing resignations that are now. You mentioned earlier about how hard it is to unseat a, a sitting prime minister, somebody who doesn't want to go. Obviously, one of the conditions you really need uh, for a conservative enough letters to go to Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee. You also need stalking horse candidates or the threat that a big name is going to move against Johnson. At the moment, it doesn't look like some of the favourites, people like Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, are publicly making any sort of noise. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch, isn't it? And I think they're caught in what I would call the David Miliband dilemma. So David Miliband was the favourite to unseat Gordon Brown. And Gordon Brown was in all sorts of agonies and problems. But the difficulty for David Miliband was that as soon as he announced himself, then people would have said, well, you're treacherous, uh, you can't be trusted, um, that kind of thing. And perhaps the party would have closed ranks. And I think that the difficulty for somebody like Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss is to do it now. The person who wields the knife often doesn't wear the crown. I also think what's going on in the Conservative Party, William Hague, who I think is a great and very astute observer of Conservative politics, says that they, the Conservative Party is an absolute monarchy with occasional bouts of regicide. <laughs> um, when that regicide happens is when the people beneath the king, the barons, decide, look, if we stick with this person, we're finished. Um, there is a real problem for us and therefore we need to replace them. I think in their minds at the moment, they are weighing up is, is there a real serious problem for us in terms of the next election sticking with Boris Johnson or not? They will want to see how this unwinds. What happens when Sue Gray releases her report? Do events happen that take over? That kind of thing. But look, you know, Boris Johnson will be feeling a huge amount of pain and a lot of discomfort and will be worried about his future at the moment. I know people who used to work in politics or particularly people who worked in Number 10 sometimes will look at the people who currently work there now, and they'll envy them at certain times. I mean, is it fair to say that as a former, you know, senior number two, you don't envy them at all at the moment? Exactly. No, I, I would not want to be in this position. I think it must be agonising to be in this position. And the key question here is, David Cameron, lots of people think he's got faults and whatever. One of the reasons he was great to work for was he would allow you to sometimes close the door and say, look, this is a complete shit show. We've got to deal with it, okay? And he would sometimes be annoyed or irritated by that and be in a very human way. But he would allow you to say that to him and process it and work through it. And I think that the question is at the moment, are people in number 10 doing that? Have they done that? And is the prime minister actually listening to them if they are? Um, and one of those things isn't happening. When you've seen the treatment of some of the staff, actually, Allegra Stratton, who you may know. Um, I do know her, yeah, very well. How did you feel when you saw, firstly, the footage of her, uh, you know, the leaked footage, and then her clearly distraught on her doorstep? 
I thought it was incredibly difficult to watch. And I think that one of the things in politics is that the way that media and social media handles these things, often it's very easy to forget the humanity behind a problem. And that doesn't mean to say that person hasn't made a mistake or done something wrong or whatever, but they are a human being. And I think for somebody like Allegra Stratton, it must have felt like a, a real bomb had gone off in her life. You know, suddenly she's standing amid the wreckage um, and trying to work out exactly what happened. And I can see that she obviously was beating herself up, felt that she'd made mistakes um, and fell on her sword. And I thought it was actually felt a very painful thing to watch. It was an honourable thing to do. And I think that she will go on to build a life and career that is good. And I think people will be very forgiving of her because of what she did. I have to say that I was asked when they were thinking about doing the on the record, on camera briefings, a bit like the White House, that my first reaction was, are you sure this feels like an accident waiting to happen? And true enough, even the rehearsals turned out to be a <laughs> God knows what it would have been like. Can you imagine having those daily on the record briefings now when Boris Johnson's facing all the stuff about parties and wallpaper? I'm amazed that they ever thought it would have been a good idea. And the problem with that is um, someone else becomes the face of the Prime Minister's failings. And that's what's happened with Allegra Stratton. She's the only person who's resigned over this whole thing. And she didn't even go to any of the parties. To, to a point, I mean, I think most people look at her and say, OK, we weren't very happy about watching that footage. It was supposed to be rehearsal footage that was leaked over a year afterwards. You did resign. You did apologise. Fair enough. Um, I, I mean, there's only one person that's really now in the frame, and that's Boris Johnson, isn't it? And, and the question is, is can he get to safe ground to continue and try and rebuild? Um, at the moment, that's in doubt, in question. You have to say on the balance of probabilities, um, he's going to stick it out. But, you know, I wouldn't bet my house on it. Seeing that footage, um, it's not quite the same because they're in a room that's got cameras in it that's designed to be uh, filmed. Reminded me a little bit of when you were caught on camera um, talking to Norman Smith from the BBC. Thank you for that, Matt. Yes. <laughs> Yes, there is a thing on, uh, there is a thing on um, YouTube where basically at the height of the hacking scandal, um, the BBC had done a report that, let's just say I was fairly exercised about. <laughs> um, I had seen that basically it started off with a spider's web that was shaking and there were pictures of the Prime Minister and Rebecca Brooks and other people in this spider's web. Um, and Norman Smith, who actually is a very decent guy and I like very much, said... Um, began his report by saying people say there's no smoke without fire, but smoke is billowing up Downing Street. And I was just really hacked off. You know, it was a Friday night after a week of complete and utter nonsense, I felt, but also a lot of pain and a lot of difficulties. Let's be under no illusion. We were in a lot of pain and a lot of difficulties. And I thought for the BBC, which I had once been an editor of this programme, to handle it in that way was not great. So I went outside and berated him. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see a camera. So somewhere in my thinking, I was thinking, don't swear, don't shout, <laughs> don't, don't do anything bad here. 
And then, of course, I went back in and within um, a not very long period of time, somebody, some charming person at the BBC had decided to leak it. Um, what was interesting about that was that David Cameron called me into his office and I thought I was going to get a huge bollocking for making such a tit of myself. Um, and he actually said, I just wanted to say thank you because you are fighting for me. And I got to see today the degree to which you fight for me and that you what you sometimes go through. And I thought that was quite interesting. They, they, the team in number 10 saw fairly early on in my time there that I was one of them and I was fighting. So it was quite interesting, even though I felt that, would I prefer that that hadn't happened? Yes. It's obviously a very different type of thing, but you know, advisors on camera, you know, there are a couple of Alistair Campbell moments. Um, Best avoided. Yes, absolutely. Um, just thinking about David Cameron then, in, in his autobiography, it really comes across his cynicism, I think, towards Boris Johnson. Or, you know, his, his assessment of him is, is, is pretty withering in his book. I mean, thinking of the Cameron years, obviously Blair Brown is the lens through which we see great political rivalries now. It wasn't really George Osborne. They learned the lesson of that. It probably was Boris Johnson who was the person, even though he was mayor of London, who was trying to take the limelight off David Cameron. What did what did Cameron make of Boris? What would well, he treat you privately? He was the prince across the water. And we used to go to um, conservative conferences and we'd have a grid of stories. And we just had to admit that there was going to be a Boris day. And it was extraordinary. <laughs> you literally watch like that the, um, he would get off the train at Birmingham or Manchester and there would just be hordes of reporters all around him. The party faithful absolutely adored him they thought they could walk on water and we just had to take it you just had to basically sit there because anything that you said that was critical or looked like you felt pain in this circumstance was not going to go well so we basically had to allow that to happen but did David Cameron find that uncomfortable yes he did and I think that the, one of the biggest lessons that David Cameron learned was that when he called the referendum on Brexit, I don't think he had quite realised the extent to which it was going to be an audition for the job of Prime Minister and that people were going to see it as that. And lots of politicians, not just um, Boris Johnson, but also Theresa May and Michael Gove, clearly saw it as a leadership opportunity. And, you know, look, that is what it is. It just is. And in politics, you just have to accept that that's how people are going to look at and deal with these situations. Because he was always dignified in the face of the attacks on him. And if you think about that referendum and the way that people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove behaved, the restraint that David Cameron showed at times was almost frustrating for people who wanted to remain to win. He always had a very, seemed to have a very clear line that he wouldn't cross when, when attacking others. Yeah, and I think a lot of people felt that they are doing everything they can, guerrilla tactics, you know, they're letting off bombs all over the place. They're saying things that are, you know, tangentially related to the truth if we put it that way um why aren't you fighting back why aren't you fighting dirty and i think he was always clear and i think this is right that every time he criticized them or fought back or said something attacking them it was immediately seen through the prism of who is fit to be leader of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister. And therefore that distracts from our central message, which is it is a very bad idea to leave the European Union. 
I think that he was right on that. It required huge amounts of discipline. And I suspect if we had spent the whole of the referendum fighting dirty in that way, we probably would have lost by more. But who knows? Because he was a he was a phenomenal campaigner, as the 2015 election shows. Uh, and obviously, his, 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 you know, when he wins the Tory leadership in 2005. Um, but he... It, this era since Cameron feels very different. It feels more attritional. Do you do you feel that? Yeah, and I think that we've got to a stage in our politics, and it's very easy to sound very pious about this, but quite quickly we've become very divisive, polarised. Um, it feels like you are in a tribe and it's my tribe right or wrong and that the other tribe can't possibly have anything good to say. And I think that that is a function of the social media environment. It's also a function of people like Steve Bannon and Dominic Cummings coming along and changing the rules of engagement. I also increase, I was thinking about this the other day. I also think that we feel in politics as if we're in a perpetual state of campaign and that the people who are in charge feel that they're not doing anything right unless they're perpetually campaigning. And when you look back at two of the great reforming governments, whether you agree with them or not, the two of the great forming governments, you know, the Labour government in 1945 or Margaret Thatcher in 1979 through the 80s, they basically went in and governed and they did stuff that was unpopular and people didn't like because they felt that they were reforming. And there was a period of governing and reform and doing and delivery um, that was not campaigning. And then there was a moment towards the election where they would go into campaign mode. Um, now, that either worked or it didn't. But I do think that we have become obsessed by campaigning and we have lost sometimes, you know, the, 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 what is the end here? And would you want to work in politics again? Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, um, <laughs> six years, six years is, a, is, is a long time and it does a lot to you. I think it's only when you come out the other side that you, particularly when you've been somewhere in, in like number 10, um, you know, you're forced to reflect a lot and particularly after something as brutal as Brexit and it's not a healthy environment to be at the centre of things for too long I think and I think that all prime ministers eventually reach a stage and then a lot of their aides as well reach a stage where look you know there's only so much of this that the human body and mind can take before you go crackers. Well you started a new podcast called Desperately Seeking Wisdom um, that you wouldn't have done if you were still working in politics. How much of that is uh, is informed by your time working in Number 10? I, I think a lot of it was. Um, just to explain what happened was a couple of years ago, just before lockdown, I kind of felt like I'd hit the buffers. And it felt like I, you know, about a dam that had a huge amount of pressure that was building up behind it. There were sort of cracks starting to appear. And it was clear to me, and it's, it sounds like a kind of like therapy term, but, but I hadn't processed a lot of things. I hadn't processed quite a lot of the stuff that happened in politics. I hadn't processed a lot of stuff that gone on in the difficult childhood. And I was living my life in a very specific way, which was very task oriented, you know, set a goal, go for it, achieve it, move on. And I felt completely exhausted and I was struggling to see what was the point of this. And life felt very much like a grind to me. And I thought, well, OK, look, we've got this lockdown period. I don't have to like run around London and the world as much as I can. I'm going to read a huge amount and look into this and say, is there a better, different way? And the first thing I found was, and I looked at a lot of modern thinkers, 
is pretty dispiriting. They kind of think of life as that we're all a kind of cosmic joke, that we're set on this kind of course of trying to find purpose and meaning in life where there is none. And we have an overdeveloped brain that makes us do that. <laughs> actually there's no point at the end of it so I at first I was thinking god you know if this is really the cutting edge of thinking we really are screwed and it maybe it is pointless but then I started discovering people who were saying different things a lot of them were saying that you know the present is all we have a lot of us spend a lot of our time living in the past or living in the future um, actually if you can try and reorientate yourself to living in the present and focusing on what's going on now you feel happier and more centered and then there was a guy called Michael Singer, um, and he did a series of talks about the meaning of life. And one particularly hit me. It's 90 minutes long. And the first 45 minutes is about the history of the universe from Big Bang to now. And you kind of think, well, this is all very interesting, but I'm not sure what it's got to do with me living now. And then after 45 minutes of talking about that, he then sort of drops the bomb and he says, so after 13 and a half billion years of universal history, um, and seven different seven billion people on this planet. What makes you think you matter, and what makes you think you can control anything? And that at first that sounds a bit sort of again dispiriting, but actually in reality it's quite comforting if you think about it. He then moves on to say, "Look, isn't it amazing that after that thirteen and a half billion years of history and um, all the other people on this planet, do you get to be here? You get to experience the best place." In the universe, the earth is an amazing place, getting to see and do amazing things and people. And if you can shift your perspective to seeing life as a great gift, then, you know, things start to become easier on you. Then a friend of mine recommended a book by an Austrian psychiatrist called Viktor Frankl, who was in Auschwitz. And he talks very, very interestingly about how our minds work and he talks about what he noticed in Auschwitz was that the people who managed to think that there was purpose and meaning and a point and actually surprisingly joy in life did better and his view was that um, even at our worst moments um, we can look at life and say isn't it great that I'm here and that doesn't mean to say there aren't bad things and painful things but it isn't, isn't it great that I'm here? And I kind of thought, well, if you can do that after what you went through, I can stop being so miserable about life and feeling it's so difficult. And then there were, there were other things about, you know, um, taking exercise, going out into nature, noticing things. And the final thing was that I'll stop rabbiting on was that um, I started speaking to people about what I was thinking and feeling and learning. And I thought they might think that you've gone a bit hippy dippy loony What's wrong with you. And I was a bit worried about doing it, but I discovered that if I was vulnerable and talked to people about this, then the overwhelming majority of people would be vulnerable back and wanted to talk about it and said, do you know, actually I feel the same. And so that made me think, well, maybe there's a podcast in this. So I sort of started contacting some people that I knew and that I knew had been through some very difficult moments. People like George Alagaya, who's currently got bowel cancer and is being treated with chemotherapy. Um, Richard Curtis, who'd had some very deep sorrow in his life. Ruth Davidson, who'd experienced two extreme accidents and suffered depression um, and wanted to hear what they'd learned from life, really. And I thought that there was a real market for that. And we launched it last week, two are out. One is George Allegaire, one is Richard Curtis, next week, Ruth Davison. Um, and it's been a phenomenal response. People 
have been incredibly kind and thoughtful about it and said that they want to listen and um, want to hear and want to contribute. It's absolutely brilliant. The Richard Curtis episode is superb and it's really good hearing both of you talk so openly about this stuff. But I've obviously known you a bit for a few years now. I would never have thought that you weren't happy or not comfortable in your own skin. It's interesting you say that. I think I was very good at presenting to the world. And one of my ways of coping with everything was that, you know, he's the guy that, you know, you you tell him about a problem and he'll say, okay, let's try and find a sensible, rational solution to this. Let's work a way through it. Be stable, be controlled. And, And that was my sort of front to the world. And that, and it worked, you know, you know, I, I managed to be editor of the Six and Technical News, ran BBC Global for a bit. Downing Street, you know, lots of mistakes, problems, errors there, but and then onto a career in consultancy and all that kind of thing. But in my, you know, the moments between, you know, that the film Bane in Rhapsody, I'm not comparing myself to Freddie <laughs> Murphy. We're not the same in many in any way. Um, but he talks about those sort of moments between where you're sort of forced to be with yourself and confront yourself. And I found in those moments that I quite often was anxious or uncomfortable or feeling something wasn't quite right. And there was this moment where it did feel as if the dam was bursting. And I went through a period of a few weeks where my system was sort of flooded by adrenaline and cortisol. And I felt I was in this constant fight or flight mode. And it was at that moment that I felt, okay, I need to start, I need to have a look at this and start thinking about it. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And what's amazing, so you talk to somebody like Tom Bradby, who presents ITV News at 10, has been an incredibly successful foreign correspondent around the world. And he talks about, you know, he had a moment where a period of weeks where he had absolute chronic insomnia. And he had he realised that, you know, he hadn't dealt with a lot of things in life. One of the themes that comes across is lots of people try to control their lives to the nth degree they try and you know go through things and put themselves through a lot of stress and strain and a lot of the things I've been reading about is about trying to accept the world as it is so you may have people in your life who've done difficult things to you or you may have situations that you feel deeply uncomfortable about or you feel that things should be a certain way and they aren't and that sense comes through of lots of people really, really trying to control things. And when they step back and accept and let go a bit, that's when they start feeling a bit more balanced and centred about lives and life starts to go a bit easier on them. These are phenomenal life lessons and, and helpful for everyone listening. 
But I, I was interested because it, it would be easy to sit here and go, well, look, you, you had a really stressful time in Downing Street. Uh, you know, the jobs that you had at the BBC are obviously high pressure. You come through the referendum, you leave number 10, and then you're searching for meaning, you're, you're decompressing after an experience so few people even in politics will ever go through. But it actually sounds like these things are deeper than that, that they predate politics, that they are yeah, about childhood. Definitely. So I had, you know, look, I don't want to go into the absolute detail of it for, for, for various reasons, but, you know, I had a, you know, difficult childhood with lots of issues and my way of coping with it was to sort of cement it over. And for a long period of time, that sort of worked. And I think it's also sort of explains the kind of jobs that I did and um, what I went into. And I agree. I think one of the, the few criticisms we've had is look, you know, that, that, you're a privileged guy who's got the time and the, you know, to be able to go and look at these things and lots of people have much, you know, harder lives, that kind of thing. I, I grant everything on that. I'm, you know, I am, I have been privileged guy. I think the first thing I would say is I think that stress, strain, anxiety, mental health issues don't respect privilege and position. Strangely, lots of people in all kinds of circumstances have them. And that doesn't mean that they're any less, um, because of that or any 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 less real because of that but also I would say that that when you talk to people huge numbers have got these kind of traumas or difficulties or feeling that things aren't quite right and we don't talk about it we kind of have in fact what happens in society is that we tell people if only you try harder you can achieve anything or out there is the one and you can subtract all your emotional problems to that person and, and they will be there your, and your saviour. You kind of think like 90% of romantic comedies and pop songs are all about that sort of idea. So we have these kind of ideas that we feed each other, particularly, I think, in the West. And, and actually, they, they make it worse for people. And when you say, look, it's understandable you're feeling anxious or it's understandable that you're feeling these difficulties. What are ways in which you might manage that? I, I, it's extraordinary the number of people who want to come forward and talk about it. And it kind of feels a bit like a defence mechanism. I say, well, you know, that's all bullshit because you're privileged. Yeah, and also privilege isn't the right way to think about it, is it? Because privilege is about financial freedom a lot of the time or, or the school you went to, but... It's certainly not a privilege, and I have no idea what you went through, but if you're not loved by your parents, or worse, then really that is a form of disadvantage. You know, a child who grows up with two loving parents or one loving parent and is less materially well-off may not present as privileged in the traditional sense, but the, the love and support they get from a family unit, you know, does them incredible good throughout their life. So thinking about it in this sort of modern British term of privileges, it really is the wrong way because you can yeah, and, and it was, wealthy, but you can certainly grow up uh, damaged by, by what happens in childhood. And I thought that the Richard Curtis conversation is fascinating because he's very open. I say to him, look, you know, you look from the outside to somebody of everything you tried, you were a success at, you know, <laughs> and he, and he's honest enough to say, yeah, that, that is what happened. But suddenly I was hit by a situation where my sister, um, you know, killed herself and all the love and all the money that we tried to pour into that wasn't enough to stop that happening. And that was an, you know, that's an extraordinary moment. And I think that, that anybody with a heart would, would feel extreme empathy for somebody who goes 
through that. And I think also we sort of bumble along, don't we? And what one of the big conversations in the thing with George Alec Geyer, he's talking about why did it take cancer to stop and make him think about what was good in life and had his life been well lived and was it worth it? Um, and then Isabel Hardman, who I think is, um, you know, is a great political analyst, a great journalist. She talks about um, some a very traumatic moment in her life. And then how does she cope and manage with that, even though outwardly she's a successful, award-winning, privileged person? She's struggling with that. And I think we can all learn from that. We, all of us can. And, you know, it, it's a level playing field. And I feel very strongly, look, I'm not setting myself up as some kind of wisdom guru. I'm completely in the foothills. You're not Steve Hilton. I'm not Steve Hilton. I'm not in that league. Um, but, but, um, but I'm in the foothills of this kind of stuff. And when I... You, there's a woman called Byron Katie, and she's written a book called Loving What Is. And she, her whole approach to life is, how do you get to a stage where you accept reality as it is and that the past has happened? And if, if, interestingly, a friend of mine, in the last couple of weeks, his father died. And he was saying that a lot of his pain was about the fact that he wasn't very close to his father and they didn't have this loving bond. And he was saying to me, that's not how it should be. And we talked about it afterwards and, I, and we both agreed that the word should is actually sometimes the most toxic in the English language. We tell ourselves how things should be rather than they actually are. And if you can accept that you didn't have a good relationship with your father and it's difficult and you can process the pain but not beat yourself up about that, accept it for what it is, not move on and not feel a failure, then life is going to be better. And I think have, being able to have those conversations and being able to be vulnerable, a lot of people feel able, not able to say that because they think people are going to judge them and say, you should be feeling this or you should be doing that or this is how things should be. And what somebody like Byron Katie says is, it's not how it should be, it just is. And it's very similar to the point you made about romance and, and, and love songs is you can only interact with your family members in the way that they're interacting, you know, you're reacting to their personality and they're reacting to yours. This idea that there is a family unit that should interact in a particular way really is a lot of the time a work of fiction. It's very romantic fiction. And for, you know, luckily a lot of people do experience um, perhaps things that feel more traditional. But beating yourself up over stuff like that, yeah. you know. And all of the James, he's a psychologist. In a particular way because of the way his dad was. Exactly. And I think Oliver James is really interesting on this. He's, a, he's another psychologist. And he says that it, he, people notice that when they go back to their families, they sort of revert to their teenage self. And, they, and in families, there's a kind of script written for each member of the family. And you fit into that role. And, and that's what you do. And it becomes very fixed. And actually, that's often not who you are or who you are with other people in your life or what you do in the rest of your life. But those people also think that's how you should be or that's how who you are. So I think, you know, a lot, a lot of discussion about, you know, how things are and what, you know, just accepting that and being able to talk about it as well. This feels like the right time of year to be talking about this because after Christmas, there's always a bit of a lull. January always feels a bit rubbish where people feel a bit blue, people are skin, you know, it's still cold and dark, but all the lights have been taken down. And, and Christmas, I think, is one of those um, should times where there is a set view that this is how Christmas is and it's great and you're definitely going to have a good time. For millions 
millions of people around the world. It's rubbish. Now, I love Christmas. I'm very lucky to have a loving family that I enjoy Christmas with. But it always strikes me at that time of year. That's what it must be at such a time of high anxiety for people that aren't doing what every advert and film is telling you you should be doing. So I, I, I love watching your uh, Twitter feed and the run up to Christmas because it's like Tiny Tim telling everybody how excited they are about the presents and the food and the drink that they're going to get. But I think the food particularly, you're very good on specifics of what is good and bad. Um, but I think you're right. You know, a lot of people, there are, there's a lot of evidence, isn't there, that there are a lot of breakups or rows or difficulties or in January there are a lot of divorces on there because people have been forced together and forced to confront certain things and often not in a way that's open or honest or helped and maybe in a position where they believe they're in a relationship where they should be in this state of heightened romance for decades and they're not or or whatever so yeah definitely I think that in society if you look at it the culture feels the norm because you're just swimming in the soup of it but actually, sometimes when you these people used make you sort of stand back and say, this is a rule that I've lived by. And is that a rule that's right? Is that actually how it should be? Um, and I do think the other thing is that that I was very aware of is that we all have certain crutches to sort of um, carry us through difficulty and that kind of thing. So for me, very much a kind of workaholic, task-driven get things done approach for other people it's drugs or alcohol or shopping or whatever and one of the guests on the podcast is a guy called Mo Gauda and he was a chief business officer of Google X who do that kind of moonshot real sort of space age amazing um, you know frontiers of technology kind of stuff and he talks about how his beloved son died in a medical accident that felt incredibly unnecessary and he talks about how did he deal with that moment where something that he built on his life on had gone. And the, one of the stories he tells is that he used to play video, um, video games with his son, Ali. And he, Ali would say, dad, you're always racing to the end of this level. You always try to get to the end and move on to the next level. And that's not the point. The point is to explore the level and see that there are all sorts of interesting things around and just spend the moment realizing where you are and I think that that's that really said a lot to me was that I had basically been treating life as a race that you need to get to the end of and not actually stopping and thinking god this is amazing or isn't isn't this wonderful and I think the lockdown for a lot of people was very painful but for me it was a great experience to for the first time almost be forced to go out in nature and watch it change and grow and move and the one thing I noticed, you know, on a day-to-day -day level, things in nature don't change. But over a couple of months, they change inexorably, completely. And there is a pattern in, in things where something doesn't exist, it comes into being, it peaks, it starts to fade, and then it goes away. And then I sort of, when I noticed that, I sort of started thinking, well, what doesn't that apply to? We have this kind of wave-like pattern of everything in terms of relationships, you know, our, our lives, even the, this planet will eventually end and go. The universe will eventually end, end and go. Political and careers. Political careers, definitely. Um, and when you start to accept that's the way things are, then you start feeling very differently about life. You start thinking, well, actually, that just naturally came to an end. And I can learn something from that. But if I try and cling on to it, 
and to try to stop it ending or try to avoid it, then I will start feeling lots of anxiety and pain and difficulty. And I think that that was, that was definitely a massive lesson for me. So you're, you're obviously in a kind of in-between phase now where you're really enjoying picking other people's brains, really thinking about, I guess, the meaning of life and, and, and how you live your own. In whatever you do next, will you approach that next challenge differently, that next job? Will you do things in a different way? I hope so. And this isn't about me suddenly, you know, going off to Tibet and becoming a monk or getting in a camper van and traveling the United Kingdom. And I'm, I'm still going to have a career and do, you know, have, have a life. I just think that I will approach it differently. And I think I will probably be better for it. When I was in um, number 10, I don't think I stopped enough to think, what an amazing experience this is. So, you know, we flew to Washington, D.C., and I was standing in the line um, waiting to be greeted by Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, and I got a tap on the shoulder, and George Clooney was there. And it was just an extraordinary (laughs) experience. Or London in 2012, I mean, experiencing the Olympics, which was just this amazing moment. There was this party at the end, which was for all the gold medal winners, um, in the British team. And I was standing in the in the party and I suddenly noticed there was a guy who looked like a slightly o- overweight version of Tony Hadley. And I suddenly thought, that is Tony Hadley. <laughs> 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 and then the next thing I thought was, he's going to sing gold, isn't he? <laughs> and he got up on this sort of pedestal and they played the backing track and he had a microphone and Tony Hadley was standing in front of me and David Cameron and all these other amazing gold medal winning athletes Brilliant. singing gold. And then at that moment, the, the, the mascot for the Olympics um, came out and started dancing and for some reason focused on me and wanted me to dance with him, which I found one of the most awkward things and painful things in my life. But I probably should have just danced with him. But then when I'd finished dancing, I then got a tap on the shoulder and somebody said, that was really cool. And I turned around and it was Arnold Schwarzenegger. <gasps> and Arnold Schwarzenegger said, you know, who are you? And introduced me. And he said, can I also introduce you to my friends, Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Jason Statham? And I was like, <laughs> OK. And it turned out, it turned out that they were in town. And they were doing the publicity for The Expendables of too. Of course, yes, yes. Which I, a movie I have never seen. You, you may have seen it, but I've never God seen it. But I just think looking back about how weird and wonderful <laughs> that experience was. And, you know, I was actually pretty stressed that evening, looking at my phone, making texts, having an argument with a journalist about a story that probably was of little consequence. Um, probably should have um, enjoyed it a bit more. It's easy to say that in retrospect, though, isn't it? And I think even with all, you know, your, your perhaps your newfound wisdom and, and, and you know, uh, maybe a slightly changed philosophy on life. But if you're working in number 10, it's a serious job. Every crisis feels serious. You'd still need that focus and that drive, wouldn't you? You, you couldn't. You do. I think and I think that it's just maybe just a slightly, um, slightly different way of going about it. It does feel incredibly serious. One time we went to Sri Lanka. And we were going to the north of the country to visit the Tamils and the government were really annoyed with us doing it. So they said they weren't going to give us any security. And just before we were um, taking off in the plane with the lobby, we wanted to have um, 
a conversation about what we were doing and, you know, that it was quite dangerous and that kind of thing. And it was fascinating what the lobby was interested in asking questions on. So um, the horse meat scandal was going on. And the first question was, has the prime minister ever eaten horse? Which I suppose <laughs> is a fairly legitimate question. But the second question was that Russell Brand had said that um, conservative MPs go home at night and masturbate into socks. And the question was, did the prime minister agree that this was an accurate assessment of the situation? And I was thinking at the time, look, come on, guys, <laughs> like this is pretty serious. What on earth are you doing asking questions like this rather than taking this seriously? Well, that's the nature of news, isn't it? And wanting it is, to get an interesting answer out of a politician. It is the nature of news. What was fascinating about it, and look, I totally understand that they're under pressure from their news desks and they don't get to talk to the Prime Minister every moment. And what was fascinating was later in that day, we had gone to the north of the country and we'd see the journalistic HQs of a number of places where journalists actually had been killed um, doing their job. And I think that that was a really sobering moment for a lot of people. It was like, hang on a minute. Um, we get very carried away with a lot of stuff in this country, but actually in reality, the stuff that people are going through in other countries is, is you know, just a different order and a different magnitude. And it's worth sometimes getting perspective on that. So are there any political implications, do you think, of, of the things you've learned on this podcast? And obviously you continue to learn things, but is there a way to change politics for the better or the, uh, things that politicians can do based on what you've learned? I, th I think we're going through a phase at the moment where the prevailing wisdom is that you need to be attritional and fight and not give any quarter. And I hope that that is the pendulum swinging one direction and it will start to swing back to a more inclusive, partisan, thoughtful, accepting approach. That's again, it's very easy to sound pious and, you know, slightly prim and proper and above it all. But when you look at the problems that the earth is facing, climate change, aging population, the rise of AI, the shift of power to the east, you know, what's currently going on with Russia and Kazakhstan, all of that kind of stuff, you look at what is happening and the way in which democracies are almost showing themselves slightly unfit to deal with things. And of course, we, you know, I'm not suggesting we should ever get rid of democracy at all, but it does need to shape up a bit. You know, we've got to start facing and confronting the reality of these things and the difficulty we have is that politicians regularly the temptation is to always take the short-term advantage i go back to those reforming governments like labor government post-1945 or margaret thatcher's government again regardless of what you think about what they did that willingness to push what you believe in and to drive things through in a certain way and not be in a persistent campaign mode. And I think also to start having conversations about can we create policies that go beyond the length of the parliament, for example, on climate change, that are going to last beyond governments. One of the great problems and worries we've got at the moment is when you talk to other people around the world is that they genuinely fear that the United States is perfectly capable of electing an administration that pulls back dramatically on all the climate change agreements that we have so far, and which are, by the way, not enough. <laughs> you know, we need to do more. And that is a big worry. And unless we can get to a stage where that consensus is accepted and people aren't taking short-term advantage, 
then we're in serious trouble. And what about, I mean, this may be too grand, but do, do you have a view on how we should organise society? You know, you, you, you're talking about <laughs> never thinking, you know, doing these jobs and, and not appreciating nature and things like that. I mean, is there a practical way to for, for everyone to perhaps take that on board? Would you support, say, a four-day week? Or, or are there things that we can do in the way that we, well, we organise our work lives that would mean that inter- you would have been able to do that when you were at number 10? It's interesting because of the career I've had, friends often get me to talk and because of the age of my children friends quite often get me to talk to you know 17 18 year old kids who are thinking about what they're going to do with their lives and why did I end up doing the things I did and what's going to happen with them and what's fascinating talking to them incredibly bright hopeful lots of amazing you know prospects and opportunities is the gaps in their knowledge are huge and I don't think that's their fault but they don't really have the first idea about how our democracy works. How is a business structured and governed? Um, What are the best ways of making sure that you live a centred and balanced life? What are the ways in which you can properly exercise or the foods you should be eating and all that kind of stuff? And And it feels to me that as well as teaching people calculus and all of those other important things, have we quite got right the the kind of life lessons that people need or just the basics of how does society operate and work? How does money work? How does a bank account work? Or And it's, a, it's staggering to say such simple things, but I think that if we spent more time on that side of things, it might help a bit more. I mean... Is this too daft to say put something like well-being on the curriculum where it's actually part of the school day to I, think I about I don't, I don't, a fulfilled life? I, I don't think it is that daft. And I think that, um, or, or, you know, I, I really don't think it's that daft to have, you know, a list of basic things that partly are, look, this is the world that you're going into and how it works, but also partly here are ways to make sure that you're mentally and physically healthy. I don't, I don't, I really don't think that is a problem. And I think we actually increasingly, I think when you talk to people that they, they feel that interestingly, isn't it famous example everybody gives is New Zealand where they have, they don't have GDP. They have a kind of happiness index where they try and measure life based on is a life well lived. I'm currently um, very lucky to be in Costa Rica and they have a national slogan, which is Pura Vida, which sort of seems to apply in every circumstance. Whatever you say, they say Pura Vida, which is basically good life or a great life or the good life or whatever. And it's fascinating being in this country where that kind of mentality pervades. And you realise that actually quite often the cultures that we live in are based on a whole series of lessons and assumptions. So I think in the UK, we have a kind of belief that constantly pushing yourself constantly driving forward is is the way to achieve and actually sometimes coming at it from a slightly different angle might be a better way to achieve so what do you think you're going to do next what am i going to do next i well i'm currently in the middle of um making sure that the podcast lands well i'm on very fortunate to be on something which is called gardening leave um there's there's, there's absolutely no gardening leave going on but what that means is is that basically i've left one consultancy and i'm going to another one and so i've got six months because of competition and contracts and that kind of thing to have time um 
to do to do this and to travel. So I am going back into the world of work after a real blessing of having a lucky time of having gardening leave. But yeah, I hope that um, you know it's been the podcast has been successful. Um, the people who are the producers of it said that they want to have a chat with me about can we do another series because it always already feels like it's cut through and been a hit. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to to try and live the lessons. I mean, the, the test I think for me is do I fall back <laughs> into the old ways and, and not take advantage of this? I have this kind of maintenance thing. Um, I think, you know, I try to do exercise every day. I try to meditate, which people often feel is a bit weird, but actually it's basically a way of helping you calm your mind. I find that, you know, 15 minutes a day of doing that is great. I'm trying to eat a bit more healthily. And when all of those things come together, you definitely feel better, less anxious. Um, life is good and pure vida. And I think that the, the big thing for me is the shift in perspective from feeling that life was a series of tasks to be got through and actually is an amazing gift. And I'm incredibly lucky to be here. And it's great talking to people like you or experiencing a lot of the things I've done and just feel much more positive about it all, really. Well, the podcast is superb. And uh, I'm sure people will have gained a lot from hearing you talk about it on here. And I'll put a link in so that people can download it uh, immediately. Craig, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed it. Well, I immediately feel calmer after that. I feel like I've been, I mean, I don't go to health spas, but I imagine that's what it feels like. I feel like my heart rate lowered, that my brain was clearer, that my mind felt more at peace with the world. And um, it's just a lesson. Sometimes from the outside, you can look at people, I think in any walk of life, but particularly politics, people who have power or that you perceive have power and presume that they're leading an amazing life and that they're totally happy and satisfied. Having worked in politics, I know how stressful it is and I never scaled the heights that Craig did. Um, So I've always known that not to be true. But nevertheless, it is an important reminder that in any walk of life, and just because people may present as outwardly confident and competent and good at their job and passionate and, you know, like Craig prided himself on being a problem solver and someone who worked hard doesn't mean that they're necessarily uh, having a great time. And that is just a good lesson anyway. But I think particularly in politics, it's uh, obviously for this show, particularly relevant. His new podcast is great, Desperately Seeking Wisdom, and you can subscribe to it by clicking the link in the blurb. And of course... You can come and see the show live, the political party at the Duchess Theatre. I mean, the last one, Alistair Campbell was such a good night out. Thank you for all your messages about that. And uh, you know what's lovely is people tweeting the auditorium. It's a phenomenal venue, the Duchess Theatre. Right opposite Mamma Mia. You know, you got <laughs> Mamma Mia, Phantom of the Opera, the political part, the Lion King, Frozen. It's incredible to be in there with all of them. But um, the next few guests are just, oh man, Angela Rayner. What a night out that's going to be then Michael Heseltine, then Edwina Curry, then Neil Kinnock, and then some amazing... Even You know, if you didn't think that was good enough, uh, more guests to be announced later in the year. But uh, the next full show is going to be absolutely incredible. You can get tickets for all of them at mattford.com slash live. Thank you so much for all the... Just the general emails you send me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com about, you know, enjoying the show and stuff like that. It, it really means a lot. Please share it, tweet about it, leave a five-star review, tell your friends, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.